This is On Grief, a podcast about death by Karen Geyer. Episode 1, I Die. Today's a good day to die. Flatline. 30 seconds to go. Can you recall any specific emotion or sensation? No, but there's something out there. We're running out of time. 300, clear. Nothing. Your heart, go again. Clear. Nothing, I can't hear anything. Come on, Nelson. Breathe. We lost him. No! Welcome back, man. I'm going next. Two minutes. 210. Was there anything negative about your experience? This is too weird. That was somewhat forgettable 1990s. Kiefer Sutherland and Julia Roberts movie Flatliners about a group of medical students that decide to explore near death. Because On Grief is a podcast about death, there's only one place to begin, and that is the process of dying. Because we don't have Why the same in the hell are we talking as a about Hollywood this? movie, the well, best way for us to find if you're going to do a podcast about death, death you have death to do a podcast about is the to ask act somebody of dying. Who it happened to. So we're going to talk so today I decided about to ask what it feels like to die who had a near-death experience. There's no better person to York talk Times to about that than somebody who's had a near-death experience. My first guest today, unless you talk to somebody who is a neurosurgeon. Welcome, Dr. Eben Alexander, M.D and author of The Map of Heaven. Welcome, Dr. Eben. Dr. Eben, for people who may not be aware of who you are, can you please tell us what your credentials are? Well, basically, I'm a neurosurgeon. I taught at Harvard Medical School more than 15 years. Um, and so basically, that's kind of my career path, is, is uh, one steeped in kind of conventional uh, modern uh, science. So even though you're an author and you tour and you have other businesses, you still maintain your practice. And I'm assuming that you keep current on all neuroscience news. Well, I'm very current, especially on issues around consciousness. And uh, consciousness itself is far bigger than just the neuroscience of the brain. Uh, there's philosophy of mind and there's quantum physics. All of them weigh in heavily on what consciousness is and how better to understand it and see how our influence over the universe can expand through our uh, kind of deeper comprehension of the nature of consciousness and reality. So most people would be familiar with a near-death experience as a cardiac event, but yours is a little bit different. You were in a coma for seven days. Can you tell us what happened? Well, I, I'll put it this way. I'll put it this way. The, the reason the scientific community and medical community are so kind of fascinated by my case is it goes beyond the millions and millions of cardiac arrest cases out there um, that had a near-death experience. Now, when your heart stops, although you're pronounced clinically dead at that point, the brain still has a plenty of capacity to continue functioning, at least for a few minutes. And uh, that's where I think my case is so extraordinary because the documented damage to my neocortex and to my brainstem over that weakened coma is so extensive that you really just can't explain all this away and saying, well, uh, uh, you know, somewhere deep in the brain, far uh, deeper than the neocortex, we have robust 
capacities for consciousness that exceeds everything that a human being normally has with an intact brain. And so that's where I think this, uh, this just gets fascinating because uh, in many ways, my case is a much stronger example of the reality of these journeys than the millions of cardiac arrest cases. Although there's some where you have people who, uh, you know, really have extraordinary, like they've been dead for a, a day or two. Uh, and then have a near-death experience and come back to life. So there certainly are those cases out there, but that's not the majority of the NDE community. Most of them are more cardiac arrests that uh, are more limited. And the, and the typical skeptic would then argue, oh, well, there wasn't uh, enough damage to the brain given that uh, cardiac arrest alone uh, for us to let go of the fact that it was all a brain-mediated adventure. In my case, there's much stronger evidence that these kind of journeys are not mediated by the brain at all. And then, of course, you've got my recovery. In the case report, my doctors are shocked that I could make a full recovery, uh, which happened over about two months or so. And that is a very powerful piece of evidence. Pay attention to this case. Like other near-death experiences like Anita Morjani and Mary C. Neal, where you have uh, people who, by all Western medical definitions are just flat out gone from this world, and yet they had ways of coming back to this world, just like I did. And it sh shocked my doctors no end, because it's not a, a typical medical explanation, but more something that we would call a miracle. The description of what happened to you in your near-death experience takes about four chapters of your book. So can you tell us sort of the Cliff Notes version of what happened? Uh, important to point out that my NDE was atypical from other NDEs in that I was amnesic. I had no memory for the life of Eben Alexander. I had no words, language, no knowledge of this universe, none of my religious beliefs or scientific knowledge. Every bit of it was deleted during the uh, entire occurrence of the NDE in my coma. It was a seven-day coma. Um, and it started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, a very primitive, coarse, unresponsive realm, like being in dirty jello. Uh, it seemed to go forever because I had no memory of moment to moment. But luckily, I was rescued by this slowly spinning white light that came packaged with a perfect musical melody. And that ushered me up uh, through this portal into this ultra real gateway valley that was a... Uh, uh, vibrant, alive, far more real than anything I'd ever experienced in this world, and uh, but also had many kind of profound spiritual features, as I discuss in Proof of Heaven, uh, like the angelic choirs that were swooping uh, up above and emanating these chants and anthems and hymns. Uh, and then that musical uh, pathway, uh, after I met my guardian angel, who was uh, kind of alongside me, uh, on this butterfly wing during that part of the journey, the angelic choirs provided yet another portal to higher and higher levels, um, all the way out to what I call the core, which was an infinite inky blackness, but over, overflowing with the healing power of that divine loving source, that same kind of God force of pure love that near-death experiencers and other spiritual journey, journeyers have encountered for millennia no matter what their belief systems. I would say all of our religious systems come from similar little hints and, and journeys into that realm. Um, but the modern NDE uh, community is really kind of focusing on the commonality and similarities of these events, uh, and that they really suggest uh, some very real realms that are part of uh, kind of human conscious uh, experience that are beyond this material world. Uh, and I would cycle through those three realms, so that earthworm eye view, that beautiful gateway valley, 
and then that pure oneness of the core uh, multiple times. And then it turned out that finally that doorway to the highest level was closed to me. And that's when I realized I was coming back to this world, but I had no idea what this world was. When I did wake up, uh, I had I didn't even recognize loved ones at the bedside, like my mother, my sisters, my sons, uh, because, again, I was still suffering from that tremendous amnesia. But the shock thing is that all of my memories came back completely within two months. Uh, and that uh, we discuss in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, which is my third book co-written with my partner, Karen Newell. Uh, we discuss a lot about how I've used meditation and going within using sacred acoustics in particular, uh, to further develop my relationship with that higher soul and with those realms that I first discovered in my NDE. Since your book and since you've continued your practice, you've probably heard, I don't know, thousands of firsthand accounts of near-death experiences, and you reviewed the data for the limited amount of research that has so far been done. So tell me, are there commonalities to people's experiences? Yeah, I would say there are tremendous similarities. And the thing you got to remember is, you know, our language is very good for describing trips to Disney World, uh, you know, things that happen in the material world. But when we're in those realms of consciousness, we don't have the normal filtering mechanisms of our eyes and ears and, and brain that normally limits the amount of information we get. But we are kind of swimming in the sea of consciousness, and it's kind of overwhelming. And Having been there, you know, it's much easier for me to kind of read between the lines in various accounts uh, and, and see, you know, which are the ones that are really making sense. Because it, it, from my point of view, it's, uh, it's, it's never going to be described as a trip to Disney World because uh, you slip outside of space and time so completely and become others, you know, as part of the lessons to be learned in a process I call knowledge through identification that... Uh, it's really shocking. It's one of the reasons why when people come back from that, they often are not going to talk about it. They think they went crazy. And that's why still to this day, even though there are literally tens of millions of NDEs that have happened to people in, in our country, in the U.S., um, many of them still do not share it. I mean, I have people come up to me after I give a talk and say, I've never told anybody this before, but... Uh, and then they share something, and it could have happened 50 years ago, and yet they remember it as if it happened this morning. That's the thing that's so shocking, is these memories do not fade. Um, but it's, it's really the evidence is there for people who are willing to review it, and the similarities are very strong, not just you know in accounts of today, but going back thousands of years, uh, the accounts and from all different uh, kind of belief systems, religious systems, uh, to me, uh, there's a tremendous amount of similarity in them. In the book, you talk about your Christianity. Do you think that you processed your experience through a Christian worldview? So someone who's a Zoroastrian or a Jewish person or a Muslim might have a different experience than you? No, I think, that, see, that's where it's important to point out that the content of these experiences is defined by the universe. So I grew up in a Methodist church in North Carolina. So my religious belief system, even though I'd gone through a dark night of the soul, as I describe in Proof of Heaven, and really 
uh, become very agnostic for the eight years leading up to my coma. But the reality is what I saw on this journey completely overturned a lot of what my original Christian teaching would have. But I would say more in favor of showing the universality of these experiences. So that to answer your question, yes, a Zoroastrian, a Buddhist, uh, you know, a, a Christian, a Muslim, uh, a Shintoist, uh, they're, they're all going to see various things and they'll report them, um, you know, based in kind of their belief system. But for me, you know, I often talk about reincarnation, how it's absolutely essential to any understanding of this. That was clear to me when I first came back to this world. But at that time, I had no idea of the uh, uh, scientific study at University of Virginia that supported the reality of reincarnation. So I had to discover that and then explore that and start to put that into my worldview. But that was nothing that came from my Christian uh, teachings in the Methodist Church. Likewise, I often now talk about uh, in my meditations using sacred acoustics, which are very deep and profound uh, kind of form of centering prayer and reconnecting uh, with the realms of my NDE, um, that often there is that very profound sense, and this just is a bringing back a powerful memory from my NDE, of becoming one with that God force, of actually identifying one-to-one with that uh, infinitely healing and creative force at the core of the universe that's completely uh, love, pure, the purest, unconditional love imaginable. And uh, and that was a tremendous gift. But becoming one with God is clearly not something that, that my Methodist upbringing taught me. So yet the content of the journey is going to be what the universe is trying to offer that soul in the form of growth. And uh, people do take their religious orthodoxies and try and use that to explain what they've seen. But again, it's uh, it's not as if your pr- previous belief systems is defining exactly how that journey unfolds, because the journey is very real. Later in this episode, we're going to hear about my experience with the near-death that was facilitated by using a drug called 5-MeO-DMT. For me, there were a lot of similarities to how you describe everything in the book, and while it was profound... I didn't really have a spiritual or a religious experience. But what I did experience was that feeling like there was an atomic bomb of love going off in my chest at the very end. But I was surprised at the universality of the experience because I had also read other people's experiences after the fact. Uh, I can tell you uh, given this tremendous question people often have about uh, about DMT is kind of duplicating NDEs, since I'd had such a profound NDE, uh, I did have uh, the opportunity uh, to experience the 5-methoxy uh, DMT. And what I can tell you is, for me, um, I think that those drugs, just like dreams, very similar to dreams, they open a doorway to that realm. But they... They're basically doing little more than letting you take a little peek through a keyhole uh, as opposed to a full-blown immersion and bathing and basking uh, in the richness of the spiritual journey. So uh, I think uh, NDEs are just far more profound. And given that you know NDEs to date are not easy to kind of set up on a whim, but you just have to see if it's part of your soul journey and destiny. Um, 
you know, I, I, I understand why people want to duplicate that. And, and I do believe, for example, I just uh, reviewed a book um, by Christopher Bache, B-A-C-H-E, that'll be coming out in a few months. And I've endorsed it because I think it's an important book. It's called Diamonds from Heaven. Um, and it is about his uh, 70, I think it was 72 high dose LSD trips, uh, all in a spiritual seeking mode. So not just recreational, but very profound. And he came to a tremendous number of conclusions uh, in that book that I would say mirror some of the deepest kind of aspects of understanding coming out of the NDE community. So I believe that um, that kind of environment, that kind of a practice uh, can certainly give people a glimpse into uh, the realm of NDEs, but uh, the NDE by and large is is so much part of the universe's staging to show an individual soul something that they need to know that uh, they just go much deeper. And I think if somebody has a dedicated spiritual practice and strong spiritual intention and, and really takes it seriously, they could make the same progress that Christopher Bachman made. But he also, in an earlier book, Dark Night, Early Dawn, uh, compared the use of, uh, of high-dose psychedelics with sound, sound in the form of things like sacred acoustics, even though sacred acoustics is a far more powerful form of differential frequency brain entrainment than anything Christopher Bache had access to back in the 1990s when he wrote that book. But he comes away saying that you can go further and deeper and get more spiritual lesson from the sound than from the uh, psychedelic drug. And I think that's a very, very important point from someone who would absolutely know the answer to that question, because he's had tremendous experience with both. So if we wanted to do more testing on what's actually happening here, how would we go about doing that? Do we just put people into MRI machines and put them into near death? How does that work? Well, the thing, you know, we ha nature gives us a lot of experiments. That, that's the thing to understand. To date, you cannot really, uh, you know, construct these things at will in a scientific fashion to do controlled studies. Uh, people would like to do that with the psychedelic drugs. Uh, but I think the, the better pathway, as I've said, is, is through sound. Um, but if in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, Karen and I go into a lot of detail about all of this, because you really can't just look at it like, are NDEs true or not? Uh, you know, it's a much bigger question than that. It has to do with the relationship between brain and mind and the very nature of, of reality. I mean, the very definitions of space and time are very much up for grabs, because you can show how a lot of what we see as this physical universe around us is only being uh, kind of generated by consciousness itself. And that is a really kind of stunning reality that the investigation of quantum physics has shown us very clearly. I do believe there are scientific ways to address this. And we talk about that, uh, for example, in Living in a Mindful Universe, we cover many of these recent psychedelic drug studies using functional MRI, in some cases uh, using uh, magnetoencephalography, different ways of assessing the brain's activity while also comparing that with a phenomenal experience that people have under the uh, influence of powerful psychedelic drugs. And the shocking thing is that in all these studies, what you show is the brain's activity decreases everywhere. There's no part of the brain where there's an increase in activity. And it's really shocking to anybody who's been through an experience with a drug like that to find that what, for example, what you went through with your 5-methoxy DMT occurred in the setting of your brain going dark. 
You know, if you'd been in a functional MRI or magnetoencephalogram, we would have seen your brain going inactive, which shocks everybody because what it does is it tells us the most profound phenomenal experiences are not generated by the brain at all, but in fact happen because the brain is getting out of the way. And that's where my story and my meningitis in particular with a very well-documented damage to my neocortex and brainstem should have disabled all but the most rudimentary forms of consciousness, and yet it did just the opposite. So obviously the brain is not generating all this. It's, it's actually getting in the way. Uh, but then we have to come up with how do you investigate that further? And, and um, I'm not sure I have, have the big answers right now. So let's say that tomorrow researchers from Switzerland announced that they have figured out conclusively what causes the phenomenon known as a near-death experience. And they have hard evidence for what it is and has a medical origin. Would that change your views? Well, there are scientific explanations, but don't make the mistake of thinking there are conventional materialist scientific explanations. There are not. In fact, conventional materialist neuroscientists will try and convince you we're not even conscious, like Daniel Dennett, who's um, a philosopher at Tufts University, who's a big proponent of materialist neuroscience, and he says, nobody's conscious, we're all zombies. Well, he might be a zombie, but I don't think that's so true for most of the souls I've encountered on this journey. So it really is, uh, there, there are scientific explanations, but they are not materialist. The materialists are hopelessly lost about consciousness. They have no idea how the brain could create consciousness. And that's why living in a mindful universe uh, and similar books, I can recommend Steve Taylor's Spiritual Science. I can recommend uh, uh, Bernardo Castrop's uh, The Idea of the World uh, and Mark Gober's The End of Upside Down Thinking. I mean, all these books go a long way towards telling us that conventional materialist science is dead in the water. In fact, it never even got out of the starting blocks. So yes, you're right. There are scientific explanations for my journey, and those scientific explanations support the reality of the afterlife and of reincarnation, because the empirical evidence tells us that uh, you know these afterlife experiences have a, a profound uh, basis in reality, and then you've got all the evidence for, um, for the uh, memories of past lives and those 2,500 children, uh, you can't just drop that evidence and say there's nothing to it. Uh, so when you start reading the evidence and following it, you realize there is a scientific explanation, but it's a far bigger science than the science I grew up with. That puny-minded little materialist science goes nowhere. That's a little dark cul-de-sac that has nothing to do with the nature of reality. But over issues of consciousness and all these phenomena of human experience, we're expanding our scientific view of the natural world. That's what it's all about. So as a doctor and as an experiencer yourself, do you believe that death is a peaceful or a positive experience? Well, I think it's, it's always going to be a positive experience. Even in those cases where you're talking about the, the violence and all, the, the pain and suffering uh, gets taken out of it very, very quickly. And that's when the soul then experiences kind of this free flow state. Uh, going through their life review, encountering souls of departed loved ones, planning their next incarnation, all that occurs in that brilliant realm of pure love and light. Uh, so I would say that every uh, death involves uh, a rapid ascent into the bliss of oneness. That's what near-death experiencers share so readily, 
is there's nothing to fear about the process. It is a gift of, of love and healing and of learning, really, learning about one's relationship with the universe. You get that big, oh, my God, lesson. Uh, and But the thing is, you don't have to die or almost die to get this. Just through, uh, and, and Karen Newell, my partner, has never had an NDE, but she has a very profound knowledge of the reality of, the, of that heart consciousness and that love force for healing. Uh, but she's cultivated it through meditation. And that's what we try and share in our play shop. So you're a best-selling neurosurgeon who jumps out of airplanes in their spare time. You believe in reincarnation. So where do you want to be when you come back the next time? Wow. You know, that's a, a great question. Uh, I must say, I have, well, but I've also come to realize that the, what really gives you, in this lifetime, from my point of view, what really gives you satisfaction and happiness is helping other souls. And that's really it. It has nothing to do with accumulating material wealth. Uh, you know, it's really about helping souls get on board with this kind of deeper um, understanding because it's so comforting and reassuring. And I'm convinced that world peace is truly within our reach. If we can just uh, uh, get this word out there, if people just understood the deeper message of NDEs is really about love and kindness and compassion. And it really starts with ourself. I mean, I came back from my journey realizing that the vast majority of the world's problems were because we didn't even love ourselves enough. And when I say that, I mean as that divine, eternal, infinitely powerful spiritual being that we all truly are. But the best way to manifest that is to help others and show kindness and compassion for all fellow beings. And, and so I, I would see my next lifetime is being deeply involved uh, in, the, in that kind of work, you know, uh, working out of a, a homeless shelter in a, a poor country or something like that to really uh, just something to help other people come to realize their power and their ability uh, to rise above their circumstances and to be the divine and sacred being that they are. So what do you think near-death experiencers know about death and about life? that other people don't. They know that we're here for a purpose. They know that we are truly, uh, in the deepest sense, uh, connected through our creation and through our evolution uh, by a binding force of love that is absolutely overwhelming. In other words, there is no way that there would be a force of darkness or evil that could overcome it. The darkness and evil is only the absence of the love and light. And we can each serve uh, a, a point point of light to bring that love into this uh, four-dimensional space-time and share it with our fellow beings. So it's a, a beautiful gift. And of course, it brings into ears so much comfort to know that in their own world. But that's why it's an important lesson to share with the entire world. Uh, and one of the reasons why I go around and also talk to medical groups, because by lifting the lid on all this, by uh, educating doctors and nurses about it all, then you take the lid off of tens of millions of NDEs that occur every year around this world, and that will be a rising tide to lift all boats. Thank you to Dr. Eben Alexander for being here today to share his story. I really wanted to understand this phenomenon of near-death experiences better, and I was made aware that you can take a drug called 5-MeO-DMT, and that can induce similar feelings to what people express when they talk about near-death experiences. So last week, 
I joined a guide at an undisclosed location and I ingested 5-MeO-DMT in a safe, monitored environment. And you'll hear about the experiences shortly. But first, what is DMT? 5-MeO-DMT is different from NN-DMT. NN-DMT is the one that you may have heard of referred to as the spirit molecule, or it's the one that you may have heard people talk about taking at Joshua Tree to have a spiritual experience. It is, by all accounts, a fun psychedelic for people to do to get in touch with a higher consciousness. 5-MeO-DMT is what you take when you want to have a spiritual experience that has a very different tone. 5-MeO-DMT induces a feeling of what they call ego death and seeing a white light and passing on to another dimension. With me to explain a little bit more about DMT is Hilary Agro, who is a PhD candidate who studies psychedelic drugs as part of policy initiatives and through the lens of anthropology. Welcome, Hilary. Hilary, let's talk about the effects of DMT and how long they last, because a lot of people are familiar with psychedelics such as LSD or mushrooms, which can take hours, up to 12 hours in the case of LSD. So it's very short. So that's one of the the main differences between DMT and the other psychedelics is that it's the shortest acting, pretty much. Um, It's about, you know, 15 to 20 minutes um, for an experience, which is really short, like you said. And, um, yeah, the other main difference is, uh, oh, and that's through, um, smoked DMT. If you ingest it with ayahuasca, it's, it's several hours. It's a lot longer, but yeah, through smoked or injected DMT, it's about 15 to 20 minutes. And, um, it's, it's quite a fast come up and come down. It hits really fast and it goes away pretty quickly. Um, and then the other distinguishing feature that, uh, I find really interesting that, um, differentiates, DMT experiences from other psychedelics um, seems to be this thing that people talk about. There's different words for it, but the spirits, um, this feeling of sensing the external presence of intelligent beings of some kind. This is such a common, a commonly reported feeling that um, as somebody who, you know, is lives like my worldview is a very sort of like materialist um, you know, grounded, uh, view of things. The fact that so many different people's experiences describe the, this external force, I find really interesting because, um, it's not something like, obviously that is something that happens on other psychedelics, but it's so consistent throughout DMT experiences that, um, it's, it's a really differentiating characteristic. What's interesting about what you're saying though, is that these effects are not dependent upon what your belief system is. So people who are scientists, people who are show me the money kind of individuals have reported these exact experiences. Mm -hmm. That must be shocking to scientists who are having those experiences when they're sort of coming into this, maybe skeptical or maybe, you know, not knowing or questioning. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. So part of the reason that I'm talking to you today is that you've reviewed a paper from some scientists in the UK who are trying to determine whether the release of DMT into the brain in the last moments before we die is what's responsible for what we would call the near-death experience. 
What can you tell us about that? It's a really interesting um, hypothesis. There's a lot of uh, unanswered questions that we have around um, the role of DMT and near-death experiences. Um, But even though there is evidence that DMT is produced in the human body, there we just to lay it out right now, there is no evidence that DMT is involved in near-death experiences. Um, there's some reasons why uh, why some people think that you know it's something worth investigating. Like obviously, partly the reason there's no evidence is just that there's not enough studies. But um, so we know it's in the body, um, but we don't know uh, where it's produced in the body and what function uh, it serves in the body. So some people hypothesize that, um, yeah, it's produced in large amounts, um, right before dying. Um, so the reason that that was, that that's been hypothesized is that DMT has been found to bind to this one particular receptor that's found throughout the body, um, that plays a a key role in protecting cells from dying when oxygen is low. So from that comes the argument that maybe DMT is released in these huge quantities, uh, during death in like your body's last gasp attempt to keep your cells alive. However, that being said, um, the quantity of DMT that's found in our blood, it's not really enough to, to do anything. Um, let alone. Yeah. Uh, so those claims are, you know, we just don't have enough evidence yet. Um, and the, um, you know, it's, uh, DMT has also been found in um, trace amounts in the pineal gland of rats, hasn't been found in humans, but that was another reason that some people think that um, because it's found in the pineal gland of this one animal, it could be found in humans, and maybe that's where it's produced in large quantities. Um, But yeah, once again, we just don't have um, evidence for that. Thank you to Hilary Agro for being here with us today. So we don't have many more answers than what we started with. But what we do have is I managed to find a person to give me a guided 5-MeO-DMT experience. And you're about to hear what happened during that 5-MeO-DMT experience. The space that we recorded in had some acoustic challenges, so I'm going to warn you up front that some of the audio isn't the cleanest it possibly could be. We have processed the audio to make that easier for you, but I understand that it might not be so easy for everyone to hear. So I asked my guide to explain where 5-MeO-DMT comes from and how we discovered it. Uh, There's a lot of misconceptions as to how 5-MeO-DMT was started, right? So initially, uh, apparently it was synthesized in Japan in the 1930s. And then at some point it was found um, in Rappi in the Amazon. And that's the snuff that they, they inhale um, in the nose. They do have probably a tiny dose, probably under four milligrams per, per um, every time it's inhaled. It's very painful and you see them falling back and going through into a small trip. Mm-hmm. Um, then at some point in the 80s, it became part of a cult in the US. And they would go around and they found it, they, because they found the uh, 5-MU DMT in the, the buffalo of their stove. And that became where that, that became the new version of where the substance came from rather mm-hmm. than the actual synthesized substance. So you find all those people now going around trying to scrape the, the, the crystals of the toad. Mm-hmm. But really, Fabian and Minium that's only a recently new thing. And that's the only new natural. The actual way the substance has always been around is initially mm-hmm. true the synthetic version. And that's what we'll be using today. 
what is the effect that 5-MeO-DMT is known for? This is known for uh, having the, the near-death experience that everybody talks about um, more consistently than NMDMT. And this is significantly diff- a different substance from NMDMT. I think the only thing that makes them come as, have, make them sound the same is actually the DMT their names. Mm-hmm. They're both short acting, but very, they're very, very different compounds and how they operate. This one, you can expect to have some pixelation, very little visuals. You find yourself, um, there's a little bit of panic and fear as your heart races as you take it. Then as the camera goes through, you feel yourself being blasted off into a rocket ship. And it's very, very terrifying, this part of the experience. You essentially uh, almost lose consciousness for a second and come back in, um, dissolve, almost being, being nothing, being nothing. And then you're feeling yourself and um, becoming one with the universe. Because this is a guided DMT experience, there's a lot of preparation that has to go into it. So the first maybe 15 minutes when you get there, you have to have a discussion about what's going to happen and how to better accept the substance, which is really jarring in your system. So um, let's talk about how you're going to accept the substance as, it, as you take it. So the first place the first you're going to get, it's going to give you a slight buzz in your body. You're going to feel what the substance is. You're going to have an idea of what it is. So when you take it a second time, it feels normal coming out. Now, in this, and, and when you take the larger dose, what's going to happen is this. You're going to feel pixelation. So you, I want you to expect that. This is what it feels like. And initial is going to be, initially it's going to be a bit of fear as your heart races. You are still here. Your heart is still running. You, and, and you feel like you need to breathe harder. So you just breathe. That again is very normal. I want you to expect that. I want you to accept that. I want you to, to jump on that train because that's where it starts going. Instead of running away from it, I want you to say, this is what I want. This is what I came here for. This is where I'm going to jump on this and yes, let it take me where it needs to take Right? So it's very, very much you taking control of the experience rather than the experience taking control of you and not knowing what happens. So you kind of allowing this to happen to you rather than fighting it all the way. Mm-hmm. That's different to surrender. We're not giving in to death. We're, we're take, letting it take us where it needs to take us. So I inhaled the first small dose through a vaporizer. See? It tastes like an air freshener. Okay. <laughs> body tickles and the body sensation happened almost instantaneously. I can feel the body buzz now. Yeah, I can feel. It felt similar to the come up on a very strong marijuana edible or vaping marijuana concentrates. It's like having um, BHO or something where you just get like a body buzz going. That's what I'm feeling right now. How are you feeling? I'm okay. It's a buzz buzz well? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's dissipating for sure. Can you wait one as well? Okay. My baby, when you go into the for a good 10 seconds old in here. Okay. And we're going to see what that us. I'm now getting like feeling like little like, yeah. tickles in my tummy. Yeah. yeah, you feel a bit of a stomach tenderness. Yeah. It's normal, don't worry about it. Because okay. the tennis you want to spit and pitch, that's normal too. That's all normal, whatever <laughs> okay. you feel. Um, the breathing, sometimes if you feel like you can't breathe and you're conscious, mm-hmm. in case there's really, a chance you might still be, mm-hmm. you can turn to your stomach and basically let your. Because you feel like there's a pressure on your chest. You mm-hmm. turn into your stomach, you know, um, you'll feel less pressure and it's easier to breathe. If, you, okay. if you're still conscious, you'll be Okay. Right? And if not, you can just leave back. If you don't feel that, you just leave back. Then whenever you're ready for yeah, it. I don't really have the tingles anymore. Is that what we're looking for? Yeah. Okay. Are you ready for it? <laughs> yeah. I'm eating it as ready as I'm going to be. Okay, so. We're going to okay. So at this point, I take the first lower dose to see how far I can get in the experience. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Here it comes. Okay. 
<laughs> okay, now I I'm aware of the room that I'm in, <laughs> but I'm not really able to talk. This is so weird. This is so Okay, now I'm feeling the thing where Okay. Need to keep breathing. This is so weird. This is so weird. Oh my god. I can't believe this. This is so bizarre. I have no idea what's going on right now. This is so unbelievably weird. And now I'm having trails and I'm hoping that I'm still breathing. <laughs> this is so bizarre. This is unlike any other psychedelic experience I've ever had. I'm really trying to be aware of my breathing. This is so unbelievably bizarre. I'm aware of everything that's happening in the room, except for I'm still trying to breathe. That's what I'm aware of. The feeling that I'm describing isn't the same feeling as maybe an asthma attack. It is a pattern of breathing known as the death rattle, which you can look up for yourself. It is a very specific cadence and method of breathing that only happens right before someone dies. Once you get through that, your brain sort of starts shutting down and all you're aware of is this quiet and this nothing. And at the end of this trip, I began to see little triangles out of the darkness that began to form into each other and began to give you the white light that people with near-death experiences report. It was absolutely impossible for me to understand how long I was gone because I stopped understanding time. I came to you shortly after the white light experience. So I didn't really break through as much as like at the very end I saw like white light. Right, so you're starting to get into this. Yeah. You're starting to end in yeah. this. Yeah. Sorry guys. <laughs> so even if you want to, you're going to a larger... How long was I here for? Oh, really? Oh, It's impossible to tell. It is a profound experience. I mean, just having, like, nothing happen and, and that feeling of, like, so I've witnessed someone die before. Mm -hmm. So, um, the, the final throes of that, they have this, like, very specific breathing pattern, and that's what I felt going on when mm -hmm. I was going into it and I was like having a bit of panic attack from that, which mm -hmm. is what you said was going to happen. <laughs> I know that. But, um, so yeah, that was what was coming to the fore for me mm -hmm. was like, Oh my God, this is, this is what I witnessed. This is the, my biggest fear mm -hmm. because that was a person that was very close to me that I witnessed die. So it was a profoundly upsetting experience, but being able to confront it in this other way, was actually a profound positive experience, but I didn't I didn't scream or anything. No, no, no. Yeah. 
After this experience, I was given the choice of taking a slightly higher dose to see if I could go into what they call the full release, which is that God experience. That is that rocket ship experience. And so that's what we did. Larger dose, more intense. Okay. But it's just going to be a bit longer. So we're going again. Oh my God, that was so weird. <sighs> At this dose, instead of me being aware of the death rattle situation, I basically just went right into an experience. This is the most bizarre thing of all time. <sighs> I've been reliably informed that I was out for about five minutes at this point in that qu quiet, calm death zone. But then once you get past that white light, there's a whooshing noise that I experienced, and then all of a sudden it felt like I had an atomic love bomb go off in my chest. And as that happened, I began to come to. So it was like I had a veil between that world and the physical world. 100%. Unbelievable feeling. Holy shit. Unbelievable. Really. Unbelievable. At one with. This is like nothing I've experienced in my life. Holy fuck. If this is what dying is like, holy fuck. <laughs> Thank you. This was a profound experience. Thank you so much. Oh my God. Oh my God. As I was in this stage, I was made aware that I had been crying. Oh my I'm sorry, I'm crying. I'm crying. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. Thank you so much for this beautiful gift. Oh my god, I'm crying. We ran tape after the experience, and you can hear the experience firsthand. The first time, it took a while for anything to happen. And I think that's probably because my body was resisting it. And then um, once I just sort of like let it go, <laughs> it was like, okay, fine. And then just this pure, like nothing. And that was awesome because I have generalized anxiety. My brain is always going. And then it, felt like forever and then I could hear things in the background I'm not I'm not being mean when I say that but I just um I could I could hear things and then at the very end I was starting to see the like little trailers and like the going towards the white light <laughs> and so then I was like, oh, okay. And then I heard, I heard noises. And so I was like, okay, well, 
I guess I'm waking up. I felt like I was waking up. And I, I just remember feeling like my hands going on my, on my stomach and then like feeling like breath coming back in. And you started talking to me. So then the second time, <laughs> it happened much quicker. I mean, that's how it felt. And I don't know if I was like making a lot of like noises or like breathing no. or whatever, but I was able to like calm myself to like accepting the breathing part. That was the thing that you mentioned. After that, it was just like it felt like forever <laughs> of like nothingness, which was kind of cool. Feeling that like that white light, that sort of like disambiguation, that sort of like feeling of like, oh, like I that's it. It's all over. <laughs> and like I don't know if I was making noises at this point or if I was like, oh my god, or whatever, but it really felt like just absolute Picture the best day that you've ever had on drugs. <laughs> Picture the best, like, fucking you've ever done. <laughs> Picture the best everything. Add it all together. <laughs> Add on, like, a trip to in and out And that's what it feels like. You didn't do it justice. <laughs> Just have this, like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And that's really what it is. And then shortly after that, I came while this was a profound experience and I feel like it resolved some feelings that I had had from my past, I wouldn't necessarily say that everybody should do this. At times, it was quite scary and for some people, there are residual after effects that can last up to three weeks, including, including sleep disturbances and depression type symptoms. What was remarkable to me is while I am a non-believer and a skeptic, I did experience exactly the same types of things that Dr. Eben Alexander did, and he is a believer. Clearly, there's more to learn about how this happens. Clearly, there's more to learn about how universal these experiences and feelings are. What's out there? I'm sure I don't know. But in a weird way, I'm far less scared about finding out. Thank you to my guests, Dr. Eben Alexander and Hilary Agro, for being with me. If you'd like to know more about Dr. Eben Alexander or to find out more about his books, it's ebenalexander.com. Thank you for listening to On Grief, a podcast about death. You can find us on the web at ongrief.fireside.fm. You can find us on social media at, at ongriefpod on Instagram or on Facebook, and on Grief Podcast on Twitter. If you'd like to contribute to our Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash on grief pod. Next week. It's hard for people to, uh, to reach out to alternatives when the, uh, when the sort of typical routine is the only thing that's ever presented to them, whether it's in the media or by sort of big funeral in general. You know, you almost never see like cool funerals in movies or TV. It's always this sort of drab, you know, everybody dressed in black with black umbrellas. They're out at the graveside. You know, it's a real bummer. Like, come on, man. <laughs> I talked to a mortician.